This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. Our new radio stream, news, talk, politics, and more. Check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And if you're in the car, stay tuned. We have a fantastic show for you tonight. We've got two very special guests live in studio. We've got Matt Hagman. He's the Democratic candidate for U.S. Congress in District 26. He'll be with us at the top of the hour. 27. 27. I'm sorry, 27. I always get those two confused. We've had candidates <laughs> from both. And then later on in the program, we have Fernando Mondi. He's a frequent contributor to MSNBC. He's a columnist for the Miami Herald. And Fernand made some very controversial comments over the weekend that have been featured in the right-wing mediaverse everywhere. And Fernand will be joining us a little later on in the program to discuss those comments and a little bit more. But this is the part of the program where I get a few minutes to speak directly with you, the listening audience, about issues of importance that impact us citywide and sometimes beyond. And today I wanted to actually discuss something that I published in my column at verifiedpolitics.com. It's our website that's part of the Occupy Democrats Network. And it's a big story. It's been dominating Twitter all day. It's getting weirder and weirder, but it's actually quite important. Uh, the reason is, is that the president is trying to provoke uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren in order to obscure what's really happening at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau today. And what is happening is an all-out disaster. President Trump is openly attacking the independence of the banking regulator who's in charge of all of consumer finance for all of America and really the only tough regulator on the too big to fail banks, Wall Street, Main Street, and anyone who's extending credit to consumers, including myself as a mortgage broker business owner and the owner of the sponsor of this show, Morningside Mortgage Corporation. This is something that I deal with on a daily basis. And as somebody who's regulated by this entity, I can tell you that their help has been invaluable in returning sanity to the financial markets, uh, you know, it, just invaluable. And the reason is, is that they did away with the liar loan through legislation. And it is up to the agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, to enforce that kind of law. But more than that, when Dodd-Frank was created to regulate these Wall Street institutions, it was done in a way that the Bureau actually has a significant regulatory role in writing rules. And right, they did. During the Obama era, they passed numerous rules regulating everything from payday loans to car loans to student loans. 29 million people were impacted by some of their actions. And we're talking about $12 billion in refunds for these 29 million consumers who were taken advantage of by financial institutions just since 2013 when Richard Codre was appointed as the first chief of the CFPB and confirmed 66 to 34 by the Senate. Well, Mr. Cadre named a successor, an acting director, or someone who could serve as the acting director, and stepped down at the end of last week. Well, the Dodd-Frank law 
the financial regulation law that was born of the financial collapse when Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns made a series of terrible mortgages, packaged them into securities, and then eventually collapsed. You know, I'm sorry, they basically are dependent on this director to carry everything out. And the Trump administration decided to name a existing White House employee, a former Tea Party politician, a Republican representative from South Carolina. His name is Mick Mulvaney. Uh, they decided to name him unlawfully as the acting head of the agency. And they're claiming that a law which gives the president limited power to make appointments in agencies, the Vacancy Act, uh, enables them to do so. This is just plain wrong. And right now, as it stands, there are two people trying to be the head of one independent agency, one a Trump White House employee, the other, the lawfully named successor. And there's a lawsuit about this and they're seeking temporary relief. But that's why the president is going on the air and making racial slurs at ceremonies that are aimed at honoring Native Americans who served in the United States military. It's all a smokescreen. And the fact is, without the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the big banks in this country Wall Street, the payday lenders, the student loan lenders, the mortgage servicers, none of them will have a strong regulator on the beat. And if that happens, it'll be a tragedy for all of us. Just think about Wells Fargo, millions and millions of fake accounts, and there was simply no way for anybody to do anything about it because there was provisions in all these contracts that insulated the bank from any real consequences. Only a regulator could do something about it. And not even a month ago, Republicans voted to kill a CFPB regulation that allowed consumers to go to court and have their day in court and perhaps a class action lawsuit, but a day in court when they're being taken advantage of by these large financial institutions and forcing these consumers to go to arbitration. And that's just what happened when Congress killed a single a CFPB rule. Okay. And there's hundreds of them that the CFPB diligently enacted. And it's an agency that needs to be protected. And if you go on Twitter, you can certainly find it at Grant Stern. I just tweeted out a link to the, the story. But uh, there's a hashtag that's trending. It's hashtag defend CFPB. And I suggest you get out there, check it out, share it, and let people know that there's a real attack on your financial security happening in Washington, D.C., not just right now. Tonight, today, it's happening. Let your representatives know that you're upset about this. Let your senators know. And hop on Twitter. Uh, tweet the hashtag defend CFPB. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Don't you worry, girls, gonna be alright. We make the music. 
My girl, just wind up your waistline. Select it, just up the baseline. And when the vibe lick you on the bass, I kick you on dance to the sunshine. You feel the vibe, you know. I'm so high, you know. This music got me feeling so right. Can you give me more? They pump me turning, I see nothing but a green light. We can cry everything, my bless the way you feel like. Them try to pull me down. Try your thing to bring me down. But I'm a Nazi, nothing just move forward in a Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, sports, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we're back live with Matt Hagman. He's a Democratic candidate for the nomination in t- District 26. And 27. Run- 27. 27. Oh, geez, man. You see, I'm like <laughs> locked in these districts. Jeez. Uh, so he's running for Congress. The, the election is next year, but we're starting early because Matt has some company. There's uh, nine, people, nine people running for the nomination. So, Matt, thank you for coming on the program with us. It's great to be here, Grant. Thanks for having me. So, Matt, tell our listening audience, what inspired you to run for Congress after Representative Ross Layton decided to retire? Yeah, you know, it actually started before that. You know, it was it was November of last year. And when Donald something happened, so when something happened, you know, and I had this is the first time I've ever run for office. I mean, this is not this is not something where I'm running to think this is the next step in in a political career. I've never run for anything before. But last fall, with the election of Donald Trump, I think so many of us stopped and thought about, you know, what have we become, right? I mean, to me, his election was sort of this shattering experience. I mean, I thought to myself that if people say and do particular things, maybe they'll come close to to winning a a presidential election. Maybe they'll come close to winning, you know, a, a Senate seat or something. But ultimately, that person would be turned away. And instead, he was elected. Something else happened. And something else happened. And so for me, that stirred. I mean, I was, you know, my, I'd been in Miami for 16 years. I was 10 years as a newspaper reporter, most of that at the Miami Herald, and almost six years at Knight Foundation. We can talk about the stuff I was doing there. But Knight Foundation, certainly the best job I've ever had. I wasn't looking to do something else. But I stopped and thought about sort of, well, if this is who we are, right? And I'm thinking that this is actually the lowest point that our politics have been in our lifetime. Certainly. Then what to do? And I thought to myself, you know, I think I want to try and be part of the solution. So as we moved into to, to the holidays and Christmas, my wife, Danette, and I, we actually, it was uh, in January, we went to the Women's March in D.C. I went with Danette, my wife, to the Women's March and continued to think about, you know, if, you know, we, we sit and complain about how we've reached at this, this lowest point in our politics, you know, that, well, now's the time to actually do something different. Now, if you're ever going to raise your hand and run, now is that time to do it. And so it was actually there that, you know, that I re- we resolved, I mean, running for anything, I think, is a, is a collective effort, right? This uh, is me certainly, and my if uh, you, you declare your candidacy without asking your wife, I think it could be a very short run. <laughs> it certainly or would. Short marriage, so it'd be which, short marriage. One know. of the two would be short. But uh, she was all in. And so with that decided uh, to run. And it was, and, and as I was thinking through um, uh, running, um, uh, Congresswoman Ross Layton uh, announced that she wasn't going to run for re-election. So this was not something, sort of seeing this opportunity to run for Congress with an open seat. The, that's not what prompted me to do this. What prompted me to do this, uh, what prompted us to do this, Danette and I, uh, was the fact that our politics had, had 
reached a low point unlike anything that we've seen in our lifetimes and want to be part of the effort to fix it. So let's talk about what you mentioned sure. about your experience, because when we speak with political candidates, we always want to know what relevant experience would you bring to the office? So you mentioned uh, 16 years of an illustrious career Thanks, in Grant. nonpartisan positions. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and now you're running for the Democratic nomination. Right. So uh, what qualifications do you believe that you'll bring from the world of journalism uh, or from the world of nonprofits that that other sure. candidates, the other nine, eight candidates in the yeah. race, <laughs> will not bring to this position well, as well, number the Democratic one. nominee? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So number one, being deeply engaged in the community, right, for 16 years. For, as a newspaper reporter, whether it's writing about uh, development that imperils the environment, whether it's writing about self-dealing politicians, whether it's writing about uh, uh, mortgage uh, brokers who are scamming, you know, preying upon unsuspecting home buyers, whether it was writing about uh, touchscreen voting machines. That was the first sort of big issue that I wrote about. Actually, when I first came to Miami, worked at the Daily Business Review. For uh, a little the, more DBR. Than two, the DBR. A little more than two years before going to the Herald. And uh, before leaving, uh, wrote a series of stories about the Ivatronic touchscreen voting machines, which we still, by the way, in Virginia, just they just got rid of them recently. But showing how there was actually there were there were security flaws, flaws. Some security flaws in them that actually imperiled our elections. So having that sort of experience, writing about these subjects, being deeply involved and engaged in the community from the ground up for ten years as a reporter, number one, and then number two going off to Knight Foundation and having the opportunity not only to write about the issues that you know, impact our community, but actually trying to do something about it. And so with that, was able to have the freedom to launch this whole new program at Knight Foundation focused on entrepreneurship of all kinds, social entrepreneurship, for-profit too, but a way in which that people could have the tools to better build the ideas that are most important to them. And so it's that ranges from everything like launching the Idea Center at Miami-Dade College to the Babson Women Innovating Now Lab program, which supports women entrepreneurs, to Black Tech Week, which focuses on supporting black entrepreneurs here in Miami and across the country, among many, many other programs. The whole idea of trying to expand opportunity across the community and try to expand opportunity for those who don't have it. So, I mean, do you think that it's a hindrance you weren't politically active all those years to suddenly go full on into a, a campaign? Because, I mean, it's really like, you know, those are very nonpartisan yeah. roles. You know, For the sure. Miami Herald, you got to be objective. You got to stay yeah. out of the partisan fray. I mean, uh, well, I think you know. what we what we need now in our politics, though, is actually being able to get things done. Right. And to be and to move away from what I see right now is this environment where we have both sides. Right. I mean, I obviously I am a Democrat. I stand strongly against Donald Trump and strongly against Republican leadership, obviously. But I think both sides right now, oftentimes we have our message points and we sort of we we trot them out, whether it's we're watching on cable news or whether it's on the House floor or whether it's in a Senate hearing or whether it's on a bar stool here, you know, here in Miami. And we sort of make our points and recede to our corner. And I think we need to, to get to a place where we're actually focused on solving problems. Actually, well, probably getting things done. Well, what do you see as the role of asking questions in all of this debate? Because I feel like Critical. everybody has their talking points, like you said, but who's asking the tough questions? Well, asking the t I mean, I'm a reporter for 10 years, right? I mean, I would argue, I mean, among the, the things that are so important right now are defending what are our fundamental values that have served us so well. And among them right now, I think, is the threat that we have on a free press and, you know, 
we're certainly not at a moment where we're celebrating the First Amendment. In fact, if, if anything right now, I think it's being undermined. And so, the, so asking questions is something we need to be doing over and over and over and over again. Well, you know, a lot of the laws that would protect people are already on the books. The problem is that they don't get enforced, right? I sure. mean, yeah. you know, the Absolutely. First Amendment. Uh, if elected, what would you do to seek better enforcement of some of these laws like this Constitution thing that everybody keeps telling me is the supreme law of the land here except for the Republicans violating it? Yeah. Look, I mean, I would, I mean, as I look at it, right, as we think about sort of what are our, our fundamental values that have served us so well, are we a country that welcomes immigrants with open arms, right? Are we a country that actually will continue to work to defend and push forward on civil rights and women's rights? I think right now as we look at incidents, like we look at things like rescinding DACA, we look at things like what happened at Charlottesville, we look at the language and the behavior of our president, right? I think all of those areas are where those sorts of values are being undermined. For me, as a, I think as, as a candidate, and if I were granted the opportunity to, to, to represent District 27 in Congress, I would be a voice fighting on all of those areas. So what are your uh, constituents, the people you've been meeting with yeah. in the district, telling you that they see as priority number one for a new House of Representatives member from District 26. 27. 27, 27 dude. Geez. We're going to get oh, it yeah, by the end. Terrible. One day, one <laughs> day. I'm telling you, you know, I had I had all the Democratic candidates from the other district on as well. Oh, I really? I think I probably told them 27. <laughs> it's terrible, right? <laughs> now, what, what are the District 27 residents telling you that's sure. the most important thing? Because well, I, I know, know that you're probably speaking with quite a few of them every day. Yes, yes, yes. And so I don't know if there's one thing, but I'll give you sort of a host of things people talk about. Uh, uh, give, me, give me a couple sure, here. Sure, sure. We're going to take Number one approach, minutes. focus on actually solving problems and getting things done. People want, want leaders who can actually execute. And I think that's something that can, can bring to the table. Number two, as we look at on issues, I think jobs and opportunity remains. As we talk about, we're in an environment now where it's just so hard for so many to get ahead, right? What are those barriers? Those barriers include healthcare, education, transportation. We've got to find solutions to all three, and the federal government has a role in all three, some, many, much bigger than others. But if we have to, to find a way to, to deal with the fact that so many, are we running up against oh, we're, time? We're good? Time. Cool. The, <laughs> don't, uh, don't hurry. I'll tell you when awesome, I'm going to take a break. Awesome. The, we have to find a way to come to all three, and I think all three play into as we think about jobs and opportunity. Number two, sea level rise and climate change. Okay. Right? And I think yeah. that actually presents what is a unique opportunity for South Florida. Because we, if, if we can actually address this, not only will it make us more resilient and more sustainable as a community, but it actually would create more jobs and opportunity across our community. Well, tell me about that. Why, sure, why sure. That as happen? we think about transitioning to an economy that's powered primarily by renewables, something that we should be working to do right now, right? We're seeing countries that are now, that are saying that they, by 2045, will be powered exclusively by renewables, or at least be carbon neutral in terms of emissions. Right. I mean, there, there was an article that came out that there's a bunch of countries that have decided to eliminate coal by 2030, just eliminate it entirely. Grant, we should own this, right? In South Florida, right? And think of a region that's threatened more by sea level rise, perhaps, than any other region in the world. We should be the place that is setting the most ambitious goals, the, the, the biggest moonshot goals in terms of addressing sea level rise, right? And think of the place where all of the sort of the newest innovations are being tried out should be here, 
right? As we think about now, we see things such as you know uh, roof tiles that are themselves that then themselves uh, are are um, can generate uh, uh, energy. Sure, solar not having tiles, the solar yeah. tiles rather than having the, the the thing on the roof. It's the roof itself that's generating electricity. That's right. And South Miami is mandating solar mandating that. Uh, but now. we should be the very for as a region and a state, we should be the very first place this all happens. Not now, right now as we're among the last. That has to change. We should own that. And we can if we choose to do so. Well, Matt, let's do this. We're going to sure. take a very short break and we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. News, politics, sports, and more. Check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And we're back live with Matt Hagman. He is a congressional candidate for the Democratic nomination in District 27. 27. Got it. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for joining me tonight, <laughs> it's great Matt. great to be here, Grant. <laughs> so, oh, you know, we didn't give you a chance before we went to break, but uh, what's your Twitter handle, your website? Where can people reach sure, out sure, online sure. after the show? Twitter, if they want to continue Matt Hagman, the at Matt Hagman, at M-A-T-T-H-A-G-G-M-A-N. You can on Facebook, Matt Hagman for Congress. Instagram, Matt Hagman. Um, it's a good brand. And, yeah, it's a good... <laughs> short, easy to remember. Short, easy to remember. Facebook, I still have my personal page up, Matt Hagman. So please, all of those different platforms uh, would love to engage. So let's talk about one of the articles that you've talked about uh, that you wrote at the Miami Herald called Borrowers Betrayed. Yeah. Uh, it's an article about the mortgage broker licensing system that used to exist in the state of Florida. Tell our audience a little bit about sure, that Sure, yeah, yeah. This, so this is back when I was at the Herald, working with Rob Berry and Jack Dolan, um, and Mike Sala was our editor. And so at the time, Florida ranked number one in mortgage fraud uh, in the country. 
And so we started thinking about how can we sort of get a handle on this. And so what we did is we actually took a database of mortgage brokers and then took a database of convicted felons and ran them up against each other. And it was like a slot in Las Vegas, right? Where it's like, ching, 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 ching. We had all <laughs> these matches, sure. right? And so with that, of course, as journalists, we looked at that and said, story. Right. And immediately then begin reporting it out. And what we found is, is that during, as, the, as the, the housing market was booming, of course, before the entire economy collapsed, that vir- virtually anyone who wanted to sell a home loan could do so. Whether right. as a mortgage broker, where or actually as this other sort of light, this sort of light touched, sort of ill-defined role of loan originator, right? Loan officer, I and call so, them. Loan officer. Well, LL, yeah, but yeah, because now they're called originators was, by law. If you hold a were, license, back you're then they were called loan originators too. They, the they were, they were. But like most, they you'd have a mortgage lender who would hire people as their loan officers. You and know then, this better than anyone. You're in the oh, business. A little bit, a little bit. So you had this like army of unlicensed people looking, working for state-regulated mortgage lenders and what they called correspondent mortgage lenders yeah. were yeah. allowed to do that. And so, and of course, this is buying a home for most all of us is the biggest investment we're ever going to make in our life. Sure. Right? Furthermore, as you're reading through a mortgage document, I don't know how many of your customers... Uh, actually themselves read through every page of a mortgage document. You'd be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) But no, uh, you know, one of the things that that I did when I started my mortgage brokerage business back in 2005 was make an ethical statement that everybody that worked for me had to sign. They had to promise to give out a good faith estimate at least three days before the closing and inform the the customer any time there were changes. Wow. Which was pretty unusual. That's cool. Because it got written into law and now it's a requirement that you do stuff like that. So I didn't realize you were actually in the industry when we did the story. Because we did the story oh, yeah. right before the whole crash. That's right. Wow. Because And so you lived through that. And oh, certainly. Wow, wow. You so, know, it was funny because that story came out. And I went to a, a meeting with an investor. And he brought an attorney. And the attorney, uh, I finished you know, making my pitch. It was a situation where uh, I had a bank come to me with a group of loans and say, hey, maybe you have an investor that wants to buy the loan obligations and deal with this problem. We're leaving Florida. And the investor's lawyer said, looks at me after the pitch and he goes, well, as you know, we'll have to investigate him very carefully. If you read the Miami Herald, you know that mortgage brokers are not to be trusted. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, no. But it's okay. I was ready you know- <laughs> for him. <laughs> But, so as a result of that, you know what happened is that within days, Don Saxon, you know, was the top banking reg- yes, regulator. Yes, he resigned. In the state. Yeah. Well, he was forced out. Oh, you know, he was yeah. right. Res- resigned under duress. Resigned under yeah. duress. Yeah. Um, and and then some reforms were passed, which is interesting. We were talking off air about how, on the one hand, they were designed to protect consumers, but on the other hand, actually, you found in ways that they were unhelpful because it actually moved out some of the smaller players, which is interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, you might be surprised to hear it, but actually the new law uh, gives the same loophole to all of the big banks. So it's all crazy. of the big banks can simply we hire need to write somebody. We betrayed two. <laughs> More like brokers betrayed Bro- brokers one. Brokers betrayed one. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's one of those things like, you know, you never think about the unintended consequences. But don't you say this is, though, what you're describing this scenario, though, is bad for consumers, too. Oh, yeah, it's very bad. Well, you know, that's the thing. 
the you had some bad originators out there, and there's no doubt of that. And you had them before working for the lenders. But the 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 thing about it is that now the banks control the space, so they've raised the margin of what people pay to about oh you know quadruple the upfront cost. Wow. And as a broker, uh, my business is to discount that, so we're still making more for every transaction, but the volume is far less. Right. And there are way fewer people in the industry now, correct? Um, definitely in the independent industry like yeah. we're doing, yeah. I yeah, mean, it I used to imagine. be that 80% of originations came from brokers. Right. But, I mean, it's just it's an interesting proposition for, you know, like you, you say, okay, you know, you look at one thing, and yes, any one piece of a system can be bad. Um, but do you have any experience that you believe will help you create one of these systems that actually is, you know, like the broader ecosystem works out? Because that's really... Like, you know, hey, okay, there's a few bad brokers. we got to get rid of those guys. Okay, 99% of the brokers have been exited from the space now. 99%. I don't think the 99% were murderers. Right. No, I think <laughs> you know, that, but I think felons as we think about this, yeah. so I think the problem, the, the problem to solve there was just the fact that so many consumers were getting preyed upon by, by scammers, by people who are actually selling them bogus home loans. Well, you know what? They were selling them legit home loans. Oh, you should adjust this a little. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, they were selling legit home loans. But what was happening is Wall Street continually lowered the standards. So literally, as a mortgage broker, you would have a parade of bankers coming in, competing and say, right. I'll take a worse loan than the next guy who just left your for office. For sure. For sure. For sure. It I mean, the bank, wild, they, right, for sure. But I would argue that these were, you wouldn't argue that in some, while they were legit, nevertheless, the people who were signing them were actually not fully knowledgeable of what they were getting themselves into. Mm, that was a very small percentage of loans, maybe like How many five people lost their homes during 10%. that period from the mortgages that they signed on to? Oh, quite Unwittingly. a few. Yeah. But the, the thing is, though, bro mortgage brokers didn't underwrite the loans. They didn't set the standards. They didn't appraise the But the, the mortgage loans. broker was the person sitting there. With, and I know this is your business, uh, which I'm you know well aware so well. I was there. <laughs> was the person who was there sitting there as sure. the consumer, as, as the home buyer, is signing on the dotted line in what is their biggest investment they'll ever make. And that's exactly a place where I think government has to roll to provide regulations so there's proper oversight as people are oh, making Oh, yes, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. And, there, you know, like I was saying earlier, there's a lot of laws that are out there that are sometimes not well enforced. Right. You know, laws are on the books, but you have to get them enforced. But in this case, you know, when were the people that set these standards held responsible? You know, well, the Wall Street bankers. Oh, I mean, the, you know, the, the banks collapsed, but then everybody lost their 100%. homes you know, when cr credit dried up. A hundred percent. And I would you agree. Know, I mean, I, I don't I, never I agree with you. hundred percent. I mean, at Washington Mutual, for example, I was just looking up a story at, about Washington Mutual. Uh, they they used a picture of somebody uh, in a mariachi outfit to verify their income. Six figure income, by the way. They had a very good picture of somebody wearing a mariachi. And they were doing that because they were no, weren't going to hold the loan. That That's they were right. going to do it and then sell it off, and they, and they could do that. Wall Street, right? Exactly. And then Wall. So, so who is sold again and again and again? This? And is it the guy sitting there with the papers signing, or is it the guy up in? I agree, hundred percent, hundred percent. I think, I think number one in terms of the guy who's sitting there at the paper signing, there needs to be appropriate regulation for that. Oh yeah. But I think also, though, of course, there needs to be a proper regulation for the banks. I mean, I'm very happy with. The regulation they enacted, because like I just said, I mean, I had actually told my people, hey, you're going to do this because I had seen people uh, take advantage of consumers. And that was wrong. But 
you know, who is going to speak for people when it comes to dealing with the banks? Or, or seeing banks have crashed an entire economy. That's is, wrong, Is too. that something you're going to be able to do in Congress? It would be, be, ab- be absolutely top of the list in terms of having the appropriate regulations on the big banks and so that what happened could never happen again. Do you think we're there? There right, right now? now? I don't think we're there. But I'd be curious what you think in terms of we're there since you're in the industry. Well, I mean, I think that there's bubbles in our economy, but not necessarily related to mortgage lending today. You know, you think the system's pretty sound right now? Um, you know, if you're asking me the questions here, <laughs> I was a reporter for 10 years, <laughs> but you uh, actually I think have it's better. This, I think it's a lot better. It's very relevant here. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I, I think yeah. it's a lot better. Yeah. I think that there's a more sincere underpinning to the mortgage transactions. But I'm very concerned about the money laundering and the the foreign capital that's pouring into the real estate market, um, that there may be insincere transactions happening. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that the homeownership rate has hit a a new low in the last eight years for, I mean, like since, I don't know, 1970 or something, we're at a low. Um, So how do you think if you were sent to Washington, you could help more people become homeowners without, you know, obviously returning to these bad past practices, is there anything specific that you've thought about? I don't know if there are specifics that I would immediately turn to other than having it as being a, a priority as a member of Congress to make to find more ways so that people could own their own home, home, own their own home. But in addition, as we're talking about this, I mean, I think as something that we all have to think about, particularly here in South Florida, is the affordability. Sure. Of, of not only of owning a home, but even renting a home. And the That's fact that the cost of living is so high that we have to find a way to come to grips with this when we're here in South Florida and across the country, um, but particularly here. I mean, I look at when I was, whether it was at, uh, at Knight Foundation when I hired you know, someone coming right out of college to work with me in our work in Miami, and just what that person went through in terms of finding a place to live exceedingly difficult, right? To say yeah. nothing of the family of four that's trying to put, put their kids through school and also uh, to, to, uh, to be able to, to pay the mortgage or pay the rent, if that may be. Well, I'll tell you one thing uh, that is definitely to do with Washington, and that is condominium financing, which is kind of non-existent. Is that something maybe? I love it. We are getting into the weeds on this. Oh, this yeah. is well, awesome. you know, but that's in the weeds. But really, but like in, my, in South Florida, like something like fifty percent of the transactions are condominiums and uh, real estate transactions. So you mean condominium market. in terms of buying a condominium unit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody can buy a condo unit with financing. I mean, if you put twenty five percent down, perhaps. Right. And so, you, would you actually like to see that? Uh, get lower right now in terms of how much people put down? Because that's, of course, what contributed before, in part, to the collapse that we saw, that people were able to get units at such a low cost. I disagree, actually. You know what? There was 96.5% financing for purchases of homes throughout the crash from minute number one until today. And it never changed. It's called the FHA. But... What we saw prior to the crash was actually people buying and flipping without even moving into condominiums. Right? Well, yeah, so, that's true. But and, back and, then, and how could you they could do get, that? Was because what they had to put down was so little. Well, back then you could get an investor with a good credit score, a hundred percent financing, 
with no money down and no credit check, no income, no assets. I mean, just, I'm sorry, credit check, no income, no assets, no employment, nothing. Like, I will give a stranger 100% financing to buy an investment condo. That, that used to be a thing. That is not a thing. Right. But I mean, the issue we had before was the rampant speculation that went on. That was a big part of it, sure. Right. Which was driven by... Which you would think the big banks, which you would think that was... Um, we wouldn't want to go back to that. I no, of course right. not. Of and course so not. one of... So, yeah. I mean, the, the thing about the mortgage market that's unique is that people don't always know who's buying and who's selling. And it extends to the real estate market once the mortgage market got all yeah. crazy. Like that investor was going out and buying that apartment with 100% financing just based on a credit check. Well, who was the real buyer? Some guy up in Wall Street was the real buyer because he was packaging, packaging that up and selling it like it was gold. But his actions, you know, influenced all the other actions down the chain. And then they deliver him this crappy loan, which he would sell to somebody in Norway and say, hope your pension works out. Right, exactly. <laughs> so and we saw where that took us. Yeah, it didn't yeah, work out well. It didn't work out well. So let's talk about some of the tough questions. There sure. haven't been a lot of stories about your district because there's nine candidates. And I think that reporters are like intimidated when there's nine candidates. Of, yeah. Um, but there was a story in the Miami New Times. Sure. Uh, written by Jerry Inelli that said that you've pulled in 500000 in fundraising, which is an enormous number. I mean, that's, that's a lot of cash for the first quarter of financing and not easy to, to accomplish. But uh, he said that some of your donors were Goldman Sachs, Citibank, um, you know, a lot of banking interests. Yeah, I think it's worth, uh, number one, the, 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 pro the, the process of raising, the practice of raising money. I've never done this before in my life. When I announced my candidacy August 1st, I had to sit down alone, no and then to sit and start calling people to try and to, to raise funds for the campaign. In terms of the story in the New Times, where they talk about Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, three people who work at Goldman Sachs contributed to the campaign. One person who works at Citigroup contributed to the campaign, and the brother-in-law of, of our treasurer, right, who just did it on a personal basis, and the three people who worked at Goldman Sachs contributed individually, who I had met previously. Okay. That was it. So as you talk about raising $512,000, which we worked really hard to pound the pavement, it, it, this was done with purely individual contributions, right? The... Um, uh, uh, the, the that none of um, uh, all individual contributions and only of the $512,000 raised, those four people amounted to about $10,000. Okay. That was it. And so obviously when we saw I said, a headline saying Goldman Sachs and Citigroup account for so much of this fundraising, that there just simply wasn't the case. Well, I mean, you're not the only candidate in the race who's attracted attention for the fundraising aspect of it. Um, Mr. Russell, the commissioner uh, for District 2 in the city of Miami, has also attracted media attention for his fundraising practices. So moving forward, I mean, what is the plan? Because people are concerned. They say they see a headline like that and they get concerned. So, it, you know, is that something that you plan to continue? Are you going to screen your donors and decide, well, maybe the appearance of this is you know, not proper, or is this something that you believe is not an issue? I don't think this is an issue. I mean, I think in terms of we're talking b before about regulations on banks, I stand strongly in favor of, of Dodd-Frank and strongly in favor of proper regulation on banks. 
individuals choosing to give to a campaign, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And in fact, if, in fact, if we, in my case, I left Knight Foundation. So I resigned from Knight Foundation. And so there is anyone who's giving to my campaign is doing so because they want to support my candidacy. There would be no other reason to support other than the fact that they want to, to help what is a first-time candidate uh, running for Congress and actually wants to try and cut a new path as we think anew about our politics and what is the very, in our lifetimes, the very lowest point we've been in our politics. So in one minute, sure. tell our listeners who are registered Democrats why they should vote for you in next year's primary. So I, so voters so should vote for me because I think we need to cut an entirely new path. That we are at the lowest point that we've been in our politics and that we need an approach that's focused on solving problems and that while we as Democrats stand strongly against Donald Trump and the Republican leadership, we also must be for something and stand for something. And those, in, in many of these cases, we need to, to focus on solving problems that predate Trump and this crowd in Washington, right? As we think about healthcare, as we think about transportation, as we think about affordable housing, as we think about reforming our educational system, as we think about tackling sea level rise. And I think I have a background that is where I've not been part of this political system, but have been deeply engaged in our community and delivering results. And that's what I hope to bring to Washington. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me in the studio tonight. Grant, it was a pleasure, and I loved getting into the weeds and all the mortgage stuff. It was terrific, so oh, thank you. Oh, yeah, anytime, anytime. Um, so tell our audience one more time where they can take this conversation online after the show. So you can find us on Twitter at, at Matt Hagman. Find us on Facebook, Matt Hagman for Congress. Instagram, at Matt Hagman. Uh, that's M-A-T-T-H-A-G-G-M-A-N. Grant, I really appreciate it. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. I love how you take it out.
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and all of our stream at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, culture, politics, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. And we're back live with Fernando Mondi. He is on fire in the right-wing media universe because uh, he made some interesting comments on MSNBC. Fernand, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Hey, Grant. Always a pleasure. So uh, b- before we get going, tell yeah. our audience a little bit about what you're doing right now because you just launched a new podcast and a new column with the Miami Herald. That's right. We've got a new weekly podcast called Strange Days with Fernando Mondi, yours truly, which uh, anybody that's interested in hearing can subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. What we do there, Grant, is we talk to all of the newsmakers of the week on the big issues that are impacting this very strange time, which we live in in America under Donald Trump. So, And then, as you mentioned, also, we're doing a, a column in the Miami Herald uh, on a regular basis. Uh, we're, we're doing a couple times a month uh, on just local issues and local topics that impact folks here in Miami-Dade County. So, Fernand, uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have actually seen you on MSNBC, but this weekend you sent me a text message that really surprised me. It was a story in Breitbart.com, the far, far, far ultra-right uh, website, uh, with your picture on it. So tell our audience a little bit about what inspired the entire right, right-wing media universe to just go crazy about what you said on MSNBC. Well, you know, Joy brought me on to discuss the, um, the, the, brief, the kerfluffle that's taking place over the Children's Health Insurance Program, which as many of your listeners probably know, the Republican Party has voted to defund uh, the Children's Health Insurance Program, also known as CHIP, that would take health care away from 9 million children. In addition to that, we also know that in this new tax cut bill that they're trying to get out of uh, the, the, the Senate this week, they're also trying to repeal the individual mandate, which would impact countless millions of Americans in taking their access to health care away, and, and obviously the consequences that come with that. So in, in reaction to that, what I was asked was, what do I think about what the Republican Party is trying to do here? And, Grant, my point was, if you look at the actions of the Republican Party over the last 10 years, and especially in this period where we know it's Donald Trump's Republican Party, this is a party that I challenge anybody listening to point to one single thing that they have done to benefit the lives of the American people, whether it's by a proposal or even a, a law that they have passed, that the Republican Congress has passed, I don't think there is a single thing that you could point to that they've done to impact, for the better, the quality of life of most Americans. On the other hand, I think we can go chapter and verse, example after example, about the many things that this party has advocated for or stood silently by while unleashing forces that have negatively impacted Americans. Uh, untold number of millions, again, whether it's around the health care issue, the immigration issue, which right now is causing terror and fear and concern for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that live in this country, um, the policies around gun control. I mean, just a plethora of these issues, one by one by one, not to mention the, with Roy Moore, you now have a faction of Republicans that are advocating, if you will, for uh, a, a member to serve in the Senate that is a convicted serial child molester and pedophile. My point was, if you're honest and you look at the Republican Party now, the last 10 years, it's not a political party. It's more akin to a domestic terror group. And I guess that comment, the, the, the truth or the bitter truth of that comment, was uh, something that was a little too sensitive for our friends in the alt-right. Right. I mean, there has been a parade of stories 
a parade of stories. Uh, MSNBC guest, Republicans are domestic terror group. Um, the Daily Caller, uh, MSNBC guest, GOP is a domestic terror group. They showed the video. I mean, they seem to be spreading the, the message pretty widely. Uh, Infowars, MSNBC guest, Republicans are domestic terrorists. Not very original, are they? You know, I, I want to thank Alex Jones and Infowars and Breitbart and The Blaze and The Daily Caller and The Washington Examiner for helping to amplify this message, which I think is a sad but important one to their many millions of people. Unfortunately, you can anticipate what the reaction has been in those circles. But I, again, I challenge most Americans, and I don't say this with any relish. I think it's one of the great uh, problems of our modern era that our other grand political party has gone off the rails in this way. And, and again, I also think this is not without precedent in American history. If you go back to the early part of the 20th century, Grant, you know, there was a, a wing of the Democratic Party that you can also describe as a domestic terror group. They happen to be called Dixiecrats, many of them affiliated with the KKK, and That's did right. many activities that uh, the Democratic Party at the time should have been rightly ashamed of. So this is not without precedent, and it's not that one side is not guilty and the other is, is free from guilt, but I think right now to deny that would be denying reality. Well, in 1948, the Dixiecrat Party actually ran its own candidate, for president, Strong apart Thurman, from that's right, yeah, yeah, and and he eventually changed parties and became a a Republican, a long time right. Republican. That's correct. Um, but there's, you know, that's the thing. I, something that I thought when I saw that comment is that there have been other what's called white terrors uh, throughout history, throughout political history in Europe, especially. Um, have you ever, you know, did you think about the underpinnings or historical underpinnings of what it means to call someone a terror group besides? The obvious, the ISIS, but I mean, there have been terror groups. That, for example, the the IRA uh, in Ireland was a terror group for many, many decades. Now it's become a political party. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, and, and you know, of course, the obvious and, and maybe easiest example is to look at what the Nazi Party did in Germany. You know, they they didn't start off from day one with Kristallnacht, and of course, what they did with the Final Solution and the concentration cramps. That was a gradual process. But many of the type of forces that they unleashed within, at the time, 1930s Germany culminated in that. And I think we're seeing many of the same footing that the current, I call them the Republic Klan Party. I think they're more, you know, after, after what happened in Charlottesville, to me, that was the, the last gasp of any idea that there was any purity in this party. And, and the reason I think this also, Grant, is I think for 2018 and 2020, the American people need to think about this not so much as a contest between Republicans and Democrats. I, I see the, the, the coalition and, and the cleavage in the 18 midterms and in the 2020 election about pro-Trump forces and anti-Trump forces. And I think within the anti-Trump forces, we need to welcome everybody who is aghast at what this Republic Klan Party now stands for, and we need to welcome anybody, even if they are not necessarily of our own ideological uh, strain or persuasion, but as long as they put the priorities of the traditions that made American democracy the great uh, hope for the world over the last 75 years, I think we need to welcome them and put past ideological differences and, 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 and make it on those fault lines instead of party ones. Well... I mean, let's let's keep going with the historical parallels because there's other ones, right? I mean, isn't it pretty much terrorism anytime you take a political idea and use it to affect a, a you know, killing or, or death? I mean, they wanted to repeal Obamacare and 
Harvard experts said that would cause 32,000 deaths per year. As many people as die from gunshot wounds would have died from the Republicans' proposed Obamacare repeal. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, is, is the definition of a terror group a group that causes bodily harm, physical harm, psychological harm, emotional harm, in, in what they're advocating for and what they're pushing for. And, and, and it's not hyperbole to suggest that the repeal of the individual mandate will cause the death of Americans. Uh, a tax policy that they're advocating for that would cut services across the board will c- result in harm committed to Americans. Well, hold on a second. Fact, the Congressional Budget Office came out with a letter stating that the Republican tax plan will activate some automatic spending cuts called PAYGO rules, and it will cut $26 billion a year from Medicaid every single year for the next decade. That will result, without exaggeration, in the deaths, the deliberate, conscientious deaths of Americans. By definition, that is an act of terror committed by a group that in this case is domestic, the sine qua non being a domestic terror group. And I, and I think the facts support the premise. And listen, I'm, I'm not a fool. I understand it's a provocative statement. I understand it may be even in some circles received as a radical statement. But it's unfortunately where I believe we are in what was once a great American political party. Not anymore. Well, I mean, isn't it fair to say that the Republican Party has been radicalized ever since the, the Bush era, uh, starting in 2001? I mean, they've come out and done a lot of highly experimental things with our economy and our nation's future and fortune. I, I, I mean, I don't think there's any, there's any doubt that, you know, some of the policies that even the Bush administration, which, by the way, as bad as they were policy-wise, would trade in an instant for the, the president we have now. But having said that, I mean, I agree with you. That the simple fact that President Bush took America to war under false pretenses that resulted in the deaths of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Iraqis and Kurds and what it led to the, to the destabilization of the Middle East. I mean, that, that is a horrific legacy with which to stand. And I think some of the initial attempts at gaslighting and delegitimizing facts, I think you remember Karl Rove's line about, you know, reality is what you make it, not what it is. That's, you saw forerunners for that into this nightmare we're living now. Well, Fernand, thank you for coming on the program. Where can our audience find out more about your new podcast, Stranger Days, and where can they take this conversation online after the show? Well, like I said, on uh, iTunes and SoundCloud, if you look for Strange Days with Fernand Amandi, you'll find us right there. And you can always catch me. Uh, I'm a big Twitter guy at Amandi on Air. That's at Amandi on Air on Twitter. Well, again, Fernand, thank you so much for joining me on the program. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite, Grant. Great show. Thank you. And I'd like to thank Matt Hagman for coming on the air with us and being live in studio. Uh, If you're listening, uh, we've got a great show planned for next week. So tune in. We have Mary Barcy Flores. She's another candidate for uh, the Democratic nomination to the 27th District. And that's all we have for tonight's Only in Miami show.